Lamentations chapter 3. This is a challenging passage. It's challenging in our faith, to our faith, and I'm just going to say it's going to be a challenging one to preach. There's a lot in here, and I would say that in, you know, my mind right now, there's a lot of heaviness with, um, I guess, the importance, the gravity of, of this passage. Um, it is continued, obviously. We've been looking at a lot of different things regarding faith, and I, I, I kind of laughed when we were putting together the service today, that graphic you see up there. I think this is the third week in a row something says faith in, in this, and well, I blame the Apostle Paul, because he keeps talking about this thing called faith. Um, so, Galatians chapter 3, and this is an important passage to our faith. It, it reminds us of how God has done these things and the why, and um, just the, the fact that we desperately need somebody to take care of this for us. This is not something we can do ourselves. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, I do invite you to stand with me if you're able as we look at God's word together. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Our Lord, thank you that you have made us heirs to your promise. And I pray, God, that as we look at this passage, we would come to a clearer understanding of what that means to, uh, to trust you in each moment. In Jesus' name, amen. As I like to say at the start of some messages, any questions? Because I can tell you, the more I read through this, and I typically, I, I've been trying every day to, to handwrite through things. And if you know for somebody who's kind of a child of the digital age to actually handwrite something out, 
oh my goodness, I can tell why I stopped because my handwriting is terrible. But um, what we, we find is that sometimes when you read the Bible, you end up asking more questions than you started with. What is Paul talking about here? And why did he put all of this following this passage? Habakkuk 2.4 is the verse that we see that is the foundational of this, the foundation of this statement, the righteous will live by faith. We find that in Romans chapter 1. We find it in Galatians 3. We find it in Hebrews 10. We see it all throughout popping back up in the New Testament, this one little line. And that one little line, the righteous shall live by faith, started something historically about 500 years ago. You might have heard it, heard about it. It's called the Protestant Reformation. If you don't know about the Protestant Reformation, there's a reason that, that let me tell you, that there's a reason you're sitting in this church and not a different kind of church. Is because of the Protestant Reformation. When we see that Martin Luther mails his 95 theses complaining about the different indulgences that the Catholic Church was requiring at that time in order to get forgiveness for sin, you could buy yourself forgiveness. We see that there was a problem in how the church was relating to the Scriptures because there is no way that we can purchase our salvation. You can't buy something that's already been bought. It's kind of like double jeopardy. It's not going to happen again. Christ died once and for all, and it's effectual to those who trust in him. He died for the sin of the world, but he says those who believe would be saved. And that's really what we come down to is that statement, the righteous will live by faith, those who believe in Christ. What does that mean then for those that saw the law? And that's the problem that, uh, that Paul is dealing with with the Galatians here. They had these guys called Judaizers. It's not a name you find in the Scriptures. But we find that these, these individuals were coming to the, the church, coming into the church and saying that you had to become a Jew first in order to be a Christian. And what was Paul's Greek word for that? Baloney. Right. He didn't say that, actually. He could have. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, but he, he gets a little hot. He gets a little angry about that. Justifiably. Because his whole belief system is built on the fact that Christ did it for him. Paul, being the Pharisee of Pharisees, understood the law, and he understood ultimately that he couldn't fulfill the law himself. But Jesus did. And so now when we get to this place, we see the effect of the promise then, this covenant that is made. Now, we start talking about a man-made covenant, and he brings up this fellow Abraham in verse 16. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And he goes into the details here a little bit, starts digging in and says, not to offsprings or heirs or seeds, whatever your, your translation may say here, but to one. And that we find that fulfillment in Christ. Now, I find it helpful when we see these Old Testament characters named to go back to the events in which it happened. So, let's return to the Old Testament and go to Genesis chapter 15. If you want to know where Genesis is, the word Genesis means beginning. Just a hint. Go back to the beginning. Go to chapter 15 of Genesis and verses... 
Sorry. <coughs> Let me make sure I get the right verses here. I wrote them down on this end. Uh, 7 through 21. You should see them on your screen as well, but I encourage you to turn to your Bibles yourself. You need to be able to navigate the Word yourself. Okay? Don't just turn on your Bible. Look for it in there. So, and he said to him, who's the he? God said to Abram, or Abraham, the God's covenant here. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So, some things have happened. God speaks to Abram. He speaks to his entire family. They leave Ur of the Chaldeans, which is pretty much modern-day Iraq, Babylon. Uh, They go up the river, then they go south, and they end up in what is modern-day Israel, or Canaan, or as would be termed ultimately by the Jews as the land of promise, the promised land. And so that's where they are at this moment. And God and Abram are having a conversation. And that, uh, that, that's the setting from where we are here. God is telling Abram, who is old, that he is going to become a father. How old do you ask? He is 100 years old. Now, I don't think anybody in here is that old. But even if you are closer than others, just think about what life would be like with a newborn baby. (laughs) And even in my mid-40s now, I'm thankful that we have moved beyond that stage. Uh, My children are precious, and I'm glad they're not babies anymore. So it's a lot of work, right? But Abram is 100 years old. His wife is 90, 10 years younger than him, still beyond what would be termed as childbearing years. And Abram says, no, this is the promise is that you are going to have a child with Sarai, or as it would become Sarah. The promise here, the name, it changes. And Abram is saying, why can't my nephew or my slave or this Eliezer fellow, the Eliezer of Damascus, be my heir? And God says, because he's not. That's the simple answer. Sometimes God says no. Because he's got better things in store. That's the setting of where we are here. I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. I didn't dig into why he didn't cut the birds in half, except that they're a lot smaller than the ram and the, and the goat and the heifer. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. He's speaking then about the, uh, well, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about the children of Israel heading into Egypt and becoming slaves. 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Fast forward to the book of Exodus. What happens? Well, they had gone into Egypt, and we'll come back to that later because my plan next, after Galatians, is the next series that I preach will be on the life of Jacob. 
And Jacob is uh, Abraham's grandson. As for you, he says, <coughs> you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Chase that rabbit later. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the Parasites, and the... Never mind. All right, that's not what, I'm sorry. When we get, so we, we see all of these ites show up. The fact is, is that God has promised this land to Abram and his possession and his inheritance. So he puts Abram into this sleep. It bothers Abram a little bit that he's going through all these things. But what happens is he's already cut these sacrifices. And when he says he's cut them, he's cut them in half in a line. And what happens then? In verse 17, it says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these two pieces. Now, normally in a covenant, you see that there will be a party, or the parties will cut the covenant together. And it would happen something similar to this on this day. They would have a sacrifice, they'd cut it, and they'd say, if we, if one of us fails to meet this, let it uh, meet this our bargain on the end of this covenant. Let us become as the sacrifice. So basically, if I don't do it, you can kill me. That's serious business, right? In this covenant, most of the time, it's both parties. But here what we see is that this fire, this flaming torch in the fire pot, pass between the pieces. That fire is the image, I believe, of the Lord. And we see that picture show back up as they go through the exodus that they are led by a, a, the fire at night and the cloud by day out of Egypt. The symbolism here is that the Lord is making this covenant and this promise to Abraham. Abraham didn't walk in between. It was only the Lord. The promise of our salvation from the very start has always been about God and His faithfulness. And so what He is saying here is that no matter what, Abram, at this place, He changes His name a little bit later in the next couple of chapters to Abraham, no matter what, this promise will be fulfilled. And what we find is that Abram still tries to take care of it himself, or else we wouldn't have somebody named Ishmael involved. But God says, no, that's not the one, because he is not a child of Sarai or Sarah. And ultimately, it's fulfilled with Isaac. And there's lots more there with it. But the fact is, is that this promise is one that God made and one that God alone could fulfill. The promise of salvation to all the nations is a promise that he made and only he can fulfill. 
Now, does he call us to trust him? Yes. Does he call us as we trust him to obey him and the, the great commission to go into the, all the world to make the disciples? Yes. But it's his work. It's his salvation. And so, 400 years later, guess what happens? The law happens. The promise of salvation was made 400, it says, Paul adds it up here, it's 430 years after, I'm sorry, the promise is made 400 years before the law is set in place. So as you see Genesis chapter 15 and get to the end of it and go to Exodus chapter 1, a significant amount of time has passed. And again, think about it. How long is 400 years? It's a really long time. We can joke and we can tease somebody about being old in the room, but none of us are that old. Typically, the human life is 75 to 85 years. That's about five lifetimes. That's a lot of generations of people to pass by. Now, along the way, we can begin to doubt God. And I think that the children of Israel hit that point, especially at the moment of the, where we came back to the Exodus, when Moses comes to them, right? They are in desperation. But what does it say? That God heard their cry. God was faithful. It wasn't in the time that they maybe thought it should have been in, but he was still faithful. And even again, he makes promises all throughout the, the books of the history, and the, even in the books of the law. How long did it take then for it to occur? Another thousand years for the fullness of time, as we'll discuss later in this book, to come in Christ. It took a long time. That's a lot of faith. That's a lot of trust. So, next time you're facing a personal struggle and you wonder when God is just going to take care of it, realize that He doesn't operate on our timeline. That's not an easy answer. Right? Sometimes it may not even happen in your lifetime that that prayer would be fulfilled. It makes me wonder, generations before us, for those in our family tree that trusted in Christ, do we, do we really think about who, how they prayed for their families? You know, we talk about praying for our own children, which you should. But I remember my grandmother praying for me. I know her mother was a person of faith. I don't know the extent of the generations upon their blessed. But I would say that it is a valid thing to pray for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren that have even yet to be born. Even if your grandchildren aren't married and don't know who they're going to marry, pray for generations beyond. Why? Because God is faithful to fulfill those promises of salvation. He is faithful to do it. It is not our work. 
this whole picture, this whole picture of the law versus the promise, we must realize that the promise came long before the rule came. God has always been about our salvation. How does he describe the law in this passage? I could stop where I've been now because I'm not sure much more there is, but I I read through a lot, so you're going to have more questions. It says, why was the law added in verse 19? It was added because we're sinners until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, we'll get to that back in a second here, but remember, he uses that singular for the offspring. Who is he talking about? This is the Sunday school answer. Jesus. He's talking about the fulfillment of the Messiah. He see, we see that Christ, when he came, was a lot different than what they were anticipating. They were anticipating a king in their mind. A king that would come in with conquering armies. One that would take over the Romans and deal with all these problems. But Jesus didn't come to fulfill a kingdom like that. And really, when you start looking back at the king that God chose for Israel, he gave them King Saul first. How'd that go? Not good. So who did he offer then? He offered David. He was a kid, right? He wasn't much to look at. He was handsome, but he was just a kid. He was a shepherd. And that is the kind of king that God desired for his people. One that would care for them. One that would lead them. And that would protect them. Saul, Saul just wanted the political power. And he got paranoid when he thought that there was a threat. And David was that threat. So now we see that when God fulfills his promises... It isn't the way we expect it. How did he come first? It says throughout the New Testament, and I didn't hit all these spots, and, and uh, you can go hunt some of these things down, but uh, that as God gave the law, he gave it through angels. Um, and so when we see that come to Moses, that we see that there was, you know, we see Moses' interaction with God. What does it say when Moses was before him? That when he had been in the presence of God, the people of Israel couldn't even look at him because of the glory that was reflecting off of him and being the presence of the Lord. And Moses could only get to that place by faith, by trusting God, because Moses himself was a murderer. He was a lawbreaker. But God is faithful, and he had plans. So he speaks through Moses. And in verse 20, it says, Now an intermediate implies more than one, but God is is one. There's a lot of theology there, and one of the commentators I read, and I didn't follow all his research on this, but he told, he said and he, as he read it, there are more than 400 interpretations of that one verse. I'm but a lowly preacher and a musician. What I do know is that God fulfilled his promise. He brought the law And the law was fulfilled in Christ. He became the one who could do it. God in flesh, Jesus Christ. 
So, is the law contrary to the promises of God? He really picture, pick, picks out here and shows why it's important. It is not, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise of the law is death. We are imprisoned knowing our insufficiencies. And what is death without Christ? It's eternal separation from God and hell. Life in Christ comes through faith, that the promise is fulfilled by those who would what? It's the same word that is trust, it's the same word that is faith, to those who believe. Believe that God is faithful. Believe that he has brought salvation. Believe that he alone is worthy of our praise and honor and glory because of what he has done for us. Because he is that fulfillment. Now, when faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. Still speaking, that righteousness was always about faith. Abram count, or believed God and God counted it unto him as righteousness. It's always been about believing what God came to do. So then, the law was our guardian. Another translation might say, your tutor. The word that I, I read there in, is uh, pedagogus. And anybody who's been in education knows that the word pedagogy means what? How you teach. Okay? Okay. I took this class called Vocal Pedagogy when I was in college and learned all about this thing right here and what you shouldn't do to it. Don't grind your throat. It's very ugly. I saw a video. Anyway, ped pedagogy is it's teaching. Pedagogus is a teacher. It's a tutor, but it's also translated here as a guardian. Think about that in teaching. You, if you are a teacher of anyone at any time in any place, you have been entrusted with a task. And that task includes preparing your students for what is ahead. How do you do that? You protect them from what they do. You see that in teaching right now. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be made right. Justice means it's been made right. It's not uh, our personal justice. It's a matter of what is right and what is wrong. It's a, it's a distinction that there is something that is good and something that is not. And that what is good is God. And he justifies us when we trust him. But now faith has come, and we are no longer under the guardian. So that law was the teacher. It taught us what we needed. It showed us that we were failures. That Christ Jesus brings us into adoption. That we are all sons of God, children of God, through faith. We follow the rules now because... He has protected us to get us to this point of faith. We, we follow God's 
word in order that we might grow in faith. Because we believe that Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And God doesn't call us to return to the rules so that we can stay saved. No, the promise is that he saves. That is the promise. That is the covenant that the Messiah has come, the chosen one, the Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So to put on Christ means that you, as he uses the picture in Ephesians chapter 6, of the full armor of God. Now, you see that picture and you see the, the faith and you see prayer and you see uh, the Word, and you see the sword of the Spirit, and you see all these different kinds of things that, that are, are drawn out there. It's all a picture of trust in our God and what He has done. This life we live now, as He says in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, the life we live, we no longer live by ourselves, but we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me that we together have been crucified with Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to God by faith. There, and and he, he throws away every distinction that we try to make. And this is an important moment even in today's culture. That there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all... are. They didn't put those words in good things for my tongue. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You don't have to meet certain qualifications to get saved. All you got to do is trust in Him. If you're Christ's, it goes back to Genesis chapter 15. Then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When you trust him, you can't help but do what he desires. Why? Because there's this love thing that's there we realize God's great love for us that while we were still sinners, He died for us. And obedience calls us to trust Him each moment, just like we have trusted Him at the beginning for salvation. The righteous always live by faith in the Son of God. Do you trust Him? Lord, I thank you for the work that you do in our lives and through your word. I pray, God, that you, um, you give us courage to trust you, to walk in obedience, to believe what you have done in us and through us in Jesus. I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for how you love us. And I pray, Lord, that you change our hearts today, that we would bless you. Give courage again to the one who would need to take a step of faith. Remind them that you are with them as you guide them. That you lead us each moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and the altar is open. If you have a step of obedience you'd like to take, we're here.
you to place your trust in him. Now's the time.